Welcome to episode six of the Analytics FC podcast. I'm Sam Gregory. I'm joined as always by Tom Warville. And this week, our guest is Mike Goodman from Grantland. How are you guys doing today? Hey, guys. Happy to be here. Yep, doing good. Good. So, Mike, can you tell us a bit about what you do at Grantland and what your connection to the soccer analytics scene is? Sure. Uh, I'm My beat at Grantland is basically European soccer. And because Grantland is sort of an American general sports and entertainment website, it's mostly me in the larger context of sports. Um, so that means that it's a lot of sort of prioritizing what the best, most interesting, most important soccer stories going on in Europe are at a given point and um, writing about them for a sort of a broader audience. Uh, I, I got there because of analytics. So it'd be about two years ago, right around the time when um, StatsBomb uh, launched, that I wrote something for them that somebody at Grandland saw. And then I, you know, I started freelancing there for a while. So I freelanced there for about a year. Uh, and then I've uh, been on staff there for like the last year. And before uh, Grantland, was it just freelance work, or have you done any, any similar work in the area? So um, I was writing uh, mostly on my own. Uh, I was doing. I spent maybe a year, a little longer, doing writing for the the Everton uh, SB Nation blog, uh, Royal Blue Mercy, uh, and then I sort of went out on my own to do more. Uh, analytics-driven stuff, but I really didn't do that separately and on my own for very long. Um, it was the same summer that Satsbomb launched, and it was sort of like... It was maybe the first time that there was a little bit of a tipping point in terms of interest in analytics. So I was doing... You know, I did some stuff on, like, a personal blog, and then a little bit... I think I had, like, the third piece that went up on Statsbomb, and that's what led to Grantland. So... Yeah, for the most part, it's been, in terms of getting paid to write, it's been uh, Grantland or Bust, with a little bit of other stuff sort of thrown in, especially around uh, the Men's World Cup last summer. Now, you're one of very few writers, I would say, probably two or three that I know that aren't specifically analytics writers, but actually works these concepts into your pieces. And I'm curious what the reaction is like, because people aren't necessarily going to your pieces for the analytics stuff, but they often get it. So what do people like? What do people not like? What kind of reactions have you had? Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I think that um, the medium where you're publishing can, can greatly affect uh, sort of the reaction that you get. Because I'm writing for Grantland and because there are a lot of other, um, I guess I'd say, general in interest writers who are analytics literate at the site. Uh, you know, the lead basketball writer, the lead football, you know, NFL football writer, uh, lead baseball writer, Grantland. They're all very, Zach Lowe, Bill Barnwell, Jonah Carey, they're all very sort of analytics conversant and uh, their writing is very informed by it. So I think that relying on analytics, using analytics when I'm writing for a broader audience at Grantland, people, get, people aren't surprised by what they're getting. The flip is when it gets out into sort of the wider soccer world, when you get, you know, some pieces that are, more broadly read than by sort of the typical Grantland audience. And then it, you know, it, it really depends on the fan base. It depends on whether you're, look, the, the, the reality is if you write something nice about a team and you use analytics, you get a lot of nice feedback. If you write something negative about a team and you use analytics and it sort of gets widely disseminated into the fan base, well, you get a lot of criticism. And that's because you're using analytics, it might be focused there, but really you're getting criticism because you said something unpleasant about somebody's favorite team. And with, like you said about Grantland's different writers being sort of very uh, analytically minded, is that sort of a style that you feel the site's going for? Or is it just one of the sort of facets that you've got going for yourself? You know, I can't really speak to sort of, you know, the, the management of Grantland particularly, but I mean, I think that, there, I mean, clearly there's, there's an emphasis on smart, intelligent, well-thought-out writing. Hmm. Um, and I think that especially if you're looking at sort of a younger generation of American writers, a lot of them come up in analytics. Or, and if they're not doing analytics, they're certainly conversant with what's being done. So I think that, you know, given who they want their audience to be, given the, the pool of talented people they draw their writers from, it's not that surprising. 
Now, one thing that you've sort of tried to do, I think, is put just drop these terms in, like expected goals and TSR into your pieces, sort of naturally and not make it a big point. And I've noticed that this has happened almost across the board in baseball now. In baseball, I mean, I, at Sportsnet, we have a soccer analytics writer, a hockey analytics writer. There's no such thing as a baseball analytics writer because every author is putting stuff like weighted runs created plus and war into their pieces. Do you think that'll happen in soccer? Do you think we'll get to a point where people are just dropping expected goals in a piece and don't need to give the explanation? Or do you think well, this is always going to be on the side? Okay, so I think there's there's a couple of things. I think that it's a, I mean, there's always sort of a process going on. Um, and I think that one of the things that, like, for better or worse in soccer writing is there's a lot more stats dropped in every, but forget expected goals. I mean, 15 years ago, nobody was putting pass completion percentages next to a player's name. Um, heck, 30 years ago, people weren't really even tracking assists. So there's more statistical data available for people writing about the sport, and it is, for better or worse, in the various ways it's used, inching its way into sort of the discourse about it. Now, when you take that sort of to a separate point and you move towards the more analytical stuff, the stuff that maybe isn't sort of self-evident what you're talking about, I think that the more widely it's in use, the more likely you are to just sort of see it referred to on a daily basis. I'm not sure that you're ever going to see something like expected goals um, sort of widely disseminated. Um, but I think you do get to the point where more people will be able to treat it like I do, and I sort of have the freedom to do it because, you know, I, I write about it a lot, and I've written sort of pieces explaining what it is where you don't feel the need that you have to sort of break it down into its simplest terms every time. Same sort of um, vein of ideas. One of the articles I really liked of yours was... Um, outlining the TSR, total shots ratio. What are your sort yeah. of favorite things about that? Because it's quite a, an easily understand metric that obviously has some quite good uh, explanatory so powers as well. So my general feeling about analytics and stats in general is that for the most part, it's just another language for talking about what you're seeing. Um, it's not so I mean I make a really big emphasis that while I use stuff like TSR or expected goals, I'm not I'm just using it to explain, you know, in a way that's similar to what people are watching. Like it's not mind boggling to say to somebody, hey, guess what? The team that has more shots usually wins. Um and so when you're using TSR, it's just sort of formalizing that so that instead of saying every time, you know, on the season, Team X had this many more shots than their opponents, you're just sort of presenting the information in a, in a more easily digestible form to people who have taken the relatively short amount of time to learn the language. Um, I like TSR. I don't love TSR as a metric per se. Um, I think that it works, obviously, in the Premier League. We don't have tremendous amounts of data in soccer at large. And I think that if you look at other leagues, leagues like, say, MLS, it has much less predictive power. And nobody's really done the legwork to sort of attempt to explain why that might be the case. And that sort of makes me nervous because, like, to me, I look at it and I'm like, okay, if soccer is general relativity and, TS, and, and the Premier League is sort of special relativity, it's a pretty big mistake to assume that things that work in the Premier League are general laws. Um, and so are there things at play specifically with how the Premier League operates, whether it's sort of stylistic choices, tactical choices that make TSR a better predictor than elsewhere? I tend to think it's possible that that's the case, um, but I don't think we have a tremendous amount of data either way. Just on that Premier League MLS sort of is our universal truths about the Premier League, universal truths about soccer question. Do you think it's possible that just the Premier League is an easier league to predict than other leagues? Because when we're looking at, I mean, when you look at the Premier League, 
you see a lot of teams that are up there the previous year, up there again year after year, whereas in MLS, there's a lot of turnover. Could it just be that MLS is a harder league to predict in general and we're never going to get that to that same sort of level of predicted capability that we have with the Premier League right now? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that's true about MLS, and I think that's true about MLS when you look at sort of how the league is structured financially so that it's designed to have more parity. But it's not just MLS. TSR works better in England than it does in Germany. Um, it's still, I mean, it still has pretty good predictive power in Germany, but not as good as England. And so why is that? Again, maybe it's the same thing. Maybe the way that sort of talent accumulates in England makes it, a league that's easier to predict. But then if talent stops accumulating in England, then we're not going to be able to predict it the same way, and we won't know until after the fact. Um, so the point isn't that TSR doesn't work. TSR works. The point is I'm sort of... If I'm going to use... If I'm going to put a lot of faith in a metric, I want to have a really good grasp of why it works, not just simply that it has worked. So do you think implementing something like expected goals models and TSR would be the next step in terms of filling so, that gap so, with data? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things about expected goals and metrics is that they work slightly better um, than, TS, than, than sort of a naked TSR does. Hmm. Um, and I think you always want as many different ways of looking at a problem as, as you can have, right? And so, um, does expected goals miss things? Almost certainly. But the next thing is then to figure out, okay, what does expected goals miss, miss and have another model that sort of accounts for that. So, like, the thing that I always go to is TSR really loved Andres Villas-Boas' Tottenham Hotspur teams. Loved them. And nobody, you know, nobody could, you know, you would if you were just sort of, blindly putting your faith in TSR, you would say, oh, well, Spurs got unlucky this year and last year and the year before. You know, you would just sort of attribute it to variance, shrug, and move on. You then look at those years through an expected goals lens and you see, oh, Spurs don't come out nearly as good. Here's why. You know, you look at sort of the types of shots they were taking and... For most teams, maybe there's not enough of a difference between how many shots and the kinds of shots that they're taking to sort of shift the needle for Spurs there were. And so now you can say, oh, well, look, no, that, that wasn't just sort of naked variance on Spurs' part those years. There's a very specific reason that we can sort of quantify. Again, this isn't like... This isn't stuff that's outside what normal soccer fans are looking at, right? Like... If you use TSR a lot in your writing or in talking about the game, you'll hear it all the time. Well, but, you know, I know my team got outshot, but we created the three best chances. And, like, that's a reasonable way of looking at the game. And then you can say, okay, well, let's quantify that. And usually that doesn't make enough of a difference, but sometimes it does. And that's sort of what expected goals attempts to, to capture. Uh, and, and in terms of that article about the Spurs you did um, sort of answered that question of, you know, they had a massive TSR and the reason for that was Andros Townsend and not having Gareth Bale, which sort of quite nicely right. wraps up what you're saying about expected goals and, you know, they're not, there is, there's not actually always the, the answer in the data and TSR gives us that, you know, that starting point, but it doesn't give us so the reason for that. The biggest challenge of, of all analytics in soccer is that it's inherently such a low event frequency sport yeah. that, you know, you constantly run up against the challenge of, is this something that we can't affect or is this something we don't have enough trials of to prove that we can affect it? And that, I mean, that's the Gareth Bale, Andres Townsend. I mean, nobody's going to look at the two of them shooting and say that they're equally skilled. But in order to sort of say with statistical confidence that they're not, you need a career's worth of data. I looked at the, uh, I saw that same issue with Tottenham having a really high TSR under Vish Boas and took it the other way and looked at Hugo Lloris, who had that year one of the worst safe percentages in the Premier League. And immediately the next year, 
under Pochettino went to one of the highest save percentages in the Premier League. And it just was sort of this flipping from high line, playing a high line and playing, giving away high quality shots to playing much deeper and not pressing nearly as high under Pochettino. Right. And that, but that, right. That's sort of the flip side of the same coin, which Mm -hmm. is that, um, if you were completely naked to watching the game and you were just looking at the statistics of the club over a couple of years, you would say, oh, hey, look, that couldn't persist, variance, and it snaps back. But if you're watching the games, that's right. It is variance and it comes back, but that happens because of tactical decisions. So there's a very fine line between what happens naturally and what happens because of sort of the conscious but on unquantifiable as of now actions of the players and coaches involved in the game. So you sort of have, as we were talking a bit about sort of the outside perspective on these debates. And one of the big ones was this expected goals debate. Where do you sort of stand on the idea of someone like Deadspin coming in and say, I mean, there was a big takedown. There was Michael Cayley's response. Sure. Where do you and, and of, yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to pretend to sort of be, uh, you know, impartial on this. <laughs> I, I know Kelly. I like Kelly. We're friends. Um, and But I will also say that sort of when it comes to analytics, I find myself in this position where to the world at large, I am an incredibly pro-analytics writer. I'm incredibly pro-analytics in terms of how I think about the game. But I also find myself when it comes to the analytics community, Oftentimes, I feel like I'm on the skeptical edge where I'm pushing for, you know, I'm not sure if I believe this conclusion independently, or maybe if you thought about it this way, you'd come up with a different sort of outcome. Uh, Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Sort of the very annoying, I'm the very annoying voice where when somebody does good work, I then immediately pepper them with 15 questions about what else they could have done. Uh, (laughs) But so when it comes to expected goals, um, I think that in general, that Deadspin article missed the point of what expected goals is supposed to do. And because expected goals is by definition an aggregate measure. Um, When you look at it over the course of a season or several games or lots of players, you get a much better view of what teams are good at or teams are bad at, then you might do just simply watching them with your eye. And that's not, I mean, the whole point of Deadspin's takedown was, hey, if you use expected goals to calculate the likelihood of a single shot, it doesn't really do that well. And that's true. So now the point, the the fact that you have this entire takedown built on sort of a faulty understanding of what expected goals is, is a little bit of a warning sign to the analytics community, right? Because I love uh, the, you know, the sort of expected goals maps of chances at the end of a game. But I love it complete with the understanding that it's not gospel. It's an interpretation of what happened. And it's an interpretation that is not necessarily accurate on a single game. It becomes more accurate as you aggregate it up to, to the sub level. People just coming to it are not necessarily going to have that context. And I think that that's sort of why you end up with a misguided deadspin takedown like that. Um, and, you know, this is, this is sort of... It's a challenge for a lot of analytics, right? Because you're doing work, you're progressing work, you're progressing work that other people know the basis of, and then it reaches a wider audience. And look, most sports fans are not necessarily interested in a cold, sober analysis of how the game works. They want to root for their team. And they want to root for, and, you know, they want to root for their team, they want to use information available to them to argue for their team and against their opponents. And I think that that's, you know, that's great. That's how sports works. And so you're going to have people who are then going to take data that you're intending to sort of be a piece of a bigger balanced whole. And when it fits their you know, when it supports what they believe, they'll use it. And when it's against what they believe, they'll decry it. And that's just sort of the line you have to walk. And I think that what you've been saying sort of answers this question. But um, in terms of the, the analytics community of the people who are doing really rigorous statistical you know, pieces of work, what do you think those guys do well and do not so well from a sort of 
general journalist perspective? Yeah, I think I think the the best people at it um, are people who do two things. First is they 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 are very sort of accessible in the ways in which their analytics work along the same lines of people who are watching the game without a statistical background, right? Um, you know, you're 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 using sort of rigorous mathematical principles, but you're not, but you're getting to the same point as people who watch the game. Um, you know, if a certain striker is on fire, you're going to come to the conclusion that, oh, well, this can't, this is unsustainable. He's going to regress to sort of a, a much more average, you know, shooting percentage um, because that's just the way the world works. Somebody else watching it will think, well, gee, if he keeps scoring like this, he's better than Messi, and we know he's not better than Messi. It's the same thought. It's just reached two different ways. So I think the best writers are sort of very aware of and very able to bridge that gap. And then I think the second thing that the best analytics writers and communicators do well is acknowledge the, sh the, the limitations of work without it invalidating their work, right? So... We can look at an expected goals map and say, this is what it said about the game, and this is useful information, and then also say, but keep in mind it doesn't account for th these three big chances that didn't result in shots, which might have skewed this. And you know, then sort of continue to build on that and say, that doesn't take away from the big picture accuracy of expected goals, because we can say with a relative degree of certainty that over large samples, those kinds of chances even themselves out, but it might skew the perception of this particular game. So I think those are sort of the two really important things that good analytics writers are very able to capture and impart to a broader audience. In terms of also going back to your, your work at Grantland and one of your co-writers, Kurt Goldsbury, um, I read his piece, Dateable, which was really interesting. <laughs> about um, sort of applying analytics, taking it a step further with um, tracking data. And a lot of his work mm -hmm. as well is really, really heavily like visualization and data visits. Do you ever see that sort of stuff coming over to the soccer world and your work specifically? Or do you think it's not as applicable because of this number of lower shots, lower scoring so, games? I, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's absolutely, you know, look, data visualization is, is great. It makes things accessible. I've actually... God, uh, almost two years ago, very briefly worked with Kurt on a on a piece at Grantland um, around the time that Suarez was coming back for Liverpool from his suspension, just sort of breaking down where he was shooting from, and you know, very similar to what you might see on on one of his basketball um, visits. Mm. Uh, so yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's look visually presenting data is really important. Um, presenting the data that we have well and the accuracy of that data without sort of increased precision from player tracking types of, of, of systems and data are two sort of separate issues. Uh, I think that everybody sort of conceptually understands how important um, off-the-ball positioning and off-the-ball actions are when you're talking about soccer. And so coming from that perspective, I think we all say, yeah, we, we really need that when it comes to more accurately um, capturing the game. At the same time, I'm not sure that people really realize exactly how hard technically, and I, last week when you had Dan Altman on, he got into this a little bit, just how hard technically it's going to be to do that. Um, because conceptually, it's, it's very, very obvious. But sort of the 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 actual steps of getting that data and using that data are very, very, very difficult. I want to sort of transition over to actually talking about a bit of soccer now. I want to talk about a few teams that you've written about in the past year. One, which I think might have been my favorite team to write about last year, was Southampton. Where do you think they're going to go from here? Uh, they're a really interesting case. I, 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 was, I started the season last year more, more bullish on them than I think most people. Um, but they're going to lose Morgan Schneiderlin. And it's going to be a very interesting test case 
for exactly how influential a, a you know a central midfielder can be. Um, and they, I mean, when you talk about off-ball data, they're one of the the sort of primary examples of how much trouble we have capturing game flow when stuff isn't happening. Um, I, my concern is that they're going to have a very hard time replacing him. I, I mean, I think that they're, they're still a very talented team, and I still think that they'll be well in the top half of the table, competing for Europa League spot. But I would, and obviously we have lots of transfer window left. Um, but I would be a little concerned about predicting them to take another natural step forward uh, without Schneiderlin. Do you think that he's like, even though he leaves, they're definitely going to have a problem replacing him? Because there was a lot of uh, media um, focus on their sort of analytics and the way they do things differently at Southampton, and then Brentford came along and sort of blew them out of the water. But do you think that they've well, already I mean, I, identified a, a replacement? I, I, I think they're going to try, but I also think that one of the things we've seen over the last few years, if you have an outside superstar on your team, they are really, really hard to replace. Um, now, that became particularly obvious because for Suarez at Liverpool and before him, Bale at, at Tottenham, those were guys scoring goals and you know carrying the bulk of, of an attack. But I would be concerned that the same is Schneiderlin in midfield. When, when a player is just that strong, um, even if you've lined up good replacements, it's very, very hard to just sort of not miss a beat. Speaking of teams that lost influential players and then lined up plenty of replacements, Liverpool is one of the big stories this year, and they've obviously taken a big step backwards. Do you think they'll be able to get back to the top four next year? Do you think they'll be a challenger for the top four next year? Where do you see them finishing around? So, they're another team where they lost Suarez, they reinvested the money, and everybody looked at it and said, oh, look, they're bringing in lots of young players. And then when those players didn't perform in year one, it's, you know, uh, it's a travesty and it's a disaster. And um, The problem is, is that Liverpool are not sustainably a second place team, really. What you can hope for is that every once in a while, everything lines up right and you can sort of peak in a year where another team is down and you can put one of those runs together. I think that if Liverpool are run really well, they're a team that year in and year out can compete for fourth. Um, I have no idea. I mean, part of it is just the amount of, of attention Liverpool gets as a club. Uh, you know, everything swirling around Brendan Rodgers. I have no idea what they're going to actually look like next year. I don't know what their, you know, their transfer window looks like. I don't know what Daniel Sturridge looks like next year. Um, can I see them competing for a Champions League spot? Sure, I can see them competing for it. Do I think that they would be favorites to come in anything above fifth? Not unless they have an amazing transfer window. Interesting that having Altman on last week, that his model pointed out that Ibe and Markovic were two of the best young players in the Premier League, which Ibe surprised me less than Markovic, but that was interesting to see considering how much... Yeah, I, I found that interesting too, especially because I've talked to other people who, at the time Markovic was purchased were not sold on him as a prospect. Um, look, different models do different things. I mean, that's, that's part of what the game is and that's part of what makes it challenging and exciting and interesting. Um, I have no idea how good Markovic can be or will be. Um, I, I mean, I've been sort of very loud in my belief that they should have just paid Sterling the money, mostly because I think that out of, sort of everybody all they have on the roster or have a chance of getting Sterling is the best chance of somebody sort of evolving into that top level superstar talent that you really need to go on one of these unlikely incredible runs. And that if you're playing hardball with him now, and if you're going to sell him now and you're not going to give him that chance to evolve, where are you finding those players? Like, you know, to me, Sterling is the, the very example of what you're trying to find. Um, no, look, $50 million is a lot of money for him if they can get that. But, again, that money doesn't turn into an immediate replacement. It turns into somebody or three somebodies who you hope three, down, three years down the line can be a replacement. So in that, in that position, would you sell up or would you keep him? Uh, well, 
I think it seems to me that the the ship has sailed on being able to re-sign Sterling um, to a contract extension. And given that that's the case, I think you have to sort of cash in when you can get $50 million for him. Um, but I, I would have... I would not have been as cavalier uh, with Sterling's contract demands as it sort of seems like Liverpool was. Just going to move on to talking about Juventus, which is a team you were you had a lot of praise for coming into the end of the season when a lot of people were saying they were lucky to make the final and you sort of stood up for them and defended Juventus as one of the smarter teams and one of the better teams in this past season. What do you think about their chances moving on next season? I, you know, it's interesting. And I wrote after the Champions League final about how hard it was sort of to project both Barcelona and Juventus going forward. Of course, Barcelona then went and, you know, locked up Luis Enrique for years, locked up Danny Alves again. And I was like, oh, so sort of everything that I thought was sort of in flux about them is now no longer in flux. But Juventus, partially by design, is you know, they've created a pretty high degree of difficulty for themselves because they're getting players cheap on good deals um, without, I mean, there's some, you know, they spend a lot of money on Dybala. Um, there's some notable exceptions. But when you're doing that, right, you're, you're, you're getting players who are 27, 28, 29 years old, but it's worth it because they're cheap, but then you have to keep churning and replacing those players. So you look at, Tevez is likely to be gone or replaced by Mandzukic. Um, Pirlo is all but gone. I mean, he's, you know, going to Yankee Stadium and watching baseball games. So, like, he's going to be, I mean, it seems pretty clear he's going to be on NYCFC next year. So Pirlo's going to be gone. Uh, Lorente is going to be gone. Um, they've brought in Sammy Kadira, who, you know, same thing. On a free, smart deal. Don't know what he has left in his knee. It's a risk. Now, it's a smart risk, but it's a risk. So I think that the answer is they still look like they're clearly the best team in Italy, um, even though both AC and Inter Milan are now spending to catch up. Uh, but does that mean that you, know, you can expect them back in the semifinals of the Champions League next year? It's, it's a tough road, and they, they, they mean a little bit like a Liverpool trying to achieve – Final Four in England, you're operating in such a way where when everything comes together perfectly, you get it done. That doesn't mean you expect to do it year in and year out. And apart from those three of Southampton, Liverpool and Juve, which you've written about you recently, are there any other teams you're looking forward to in the next season? Yeah, you know, you get to the end of every year and you're like, gee, I wish I, wish I had paid more attention to these teams just because sort of the various... You know, storylines of the season don't let you, especially me when it's, you know, basically me three times a week covering all of Europe, don't let you engage in everything that you want to. I didn't write about Sevilla nearly as much as I would have liked. Um, I didn't write about Lazio nearly as much as I would have liked. Um, you know, so, I mean, those, those are two teams that immediately come to mind as, uh, you know, things that I'm looking forward to engaging with more next year. I mean, I'm excited to see what Manchester United... It's not like I didn't... <laughs> but, like, with a Schneiderlin, with a second year, I'm excited to see what they look like. Um, I think that, you know, if you want to look at a team that's most likely to take a big jump in, in, in scale, in talent level, and, and in performance, they might be it. Because, you know, you're coming from a year last year where they were, you know they performed better than their underlying stats would indicate. They had stretches where they played very, very well. But they got more out of the stretches where they didn't play well than you would expect them to. Um, but there's no end, it seems like there's no end to their spending in sight. So they're going to be better next year, I think. And I'm sort of excited to see how much better. I am too. <laughs> I, I know you are. <laughs> so... When you're talking about Juve being sort of one of these smarter teams in Europe, do you see any other big teams that are following those steps? Because we talk a lot about the Southamptons or the Brentfords of the world making all these smart decisions. But do you see any other big name teams that are in the year that are making these sort of smarter decisions? Okay, well, it depends on what we mean when we're talking about smarter decisions, right? So 
Chelsea run that club incredibly intelligently. They have all the money in the world, but they've built that loan army to sort of meaning that they can balance their books, spend big in years where they want to spend big, in years where they don't want to spend big, bring in more profit. Like, that team is phenomenally well run in terms of their ability to create whatever roster they want to create. Um, but because they're Chelsea, that doesn't mean that they're like finding these hidden gems of players that nobody's heard of. They don't have to do that. Um, you know, Porto has historically been incredibly well run, but it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's leveraging their inherent advantage uh, in working with, uh, players that have third-party ownership in being sort of a conduit from South America. Like, again, they're really well-run. They develop talent. It's not necessarily the way we sort of typically in the analytics world think of being well-run, where we're like, well, gee, if Liverpool was only a little bit smarter, then they would buy seven guys nobody's ever heard of who became superstars. Um, and so it's it's always tough. Like, you look at a team like Southampton and, like, they seem like they're really, really well wrong. They also spent a lot of money on Shane Long last year. I, I have no idea why. And so you wonder, you know, if you don't know the inner workings of a club, getting lucky on a couple of really smart buys, or just, you know, it's not even getting lucky. Having good traditional scouting, as opposed to sort of something that I think you're talking about more analytically based, can look a hell of a lot like having really good analytics. You're always trying to judge these things, and obviously, you know, Brentford is going to be everybody's grand experiment because they're <laughs> quite clear and quite public about how they're doing things. Um, and I, you know, and you know, I believe that they're going to have a pretty big comparative edge from it. Um, but I think it's very hard from the outside to read tea leaves and sort of reverse engineer stuff. Um, and I think that you sort of fall into the trap of seeing what you want to see when it comes to, oh, they made a smart analytical purchase, therefore they must be doing good analytics. And in terms of getting smart buys, um, something that Sam kind of started a mini riot on uh, Twitter earlier is the move of Petacek to Arsenal. What are your? Yeah, I, are I your saw thoughts? that. I don't have. A, I mean, I I don't have a problem with it mostly because I think Peter Cech can be good until he's thirty eight, thirty nine years old, and he's. I mean. Everything about him still seems to me to indicate that he's an elite level keeper and that Arsenal needed that that was a, a position of need for Arsenal. So to me, I mean I, I it was not a purchase I had a problem with. Um, now, you know, six months from now if that's the only purchase they've made and we find out that for whatever reason they didn't have a lot of money to spend, well then then you revisit it and say, um, well, boy, that money might have been able to be spent better elsewhere. But given the assumptions that I'm making about them, which is that this is a relatively small portion of whatever budget they have, yeah, I have no problem with it. No, my, my point on this, is, I think it's sometimes hard to disentangle sort of what you think of the evaluation of the player and the situation of the club, because obviously Chelsea knows they can get more out of Arsenal for better check than they would be able to out of probably any other Premier League team except for Manchester United once they lose to Haya. But I mm -hmm. think when you look at, if you look at it as a pure value, player valuation, £11 million for a 33-year-old keeper who has not played in a year, who, I mean, regardless of how he did perform in, that, in this past season, I think we have plenty of examples of keepers whose aging curves just fall off a cliff. I mean, Casillas is a great one. Oliver Kahn a few years back is a great one. These players are just look good, 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 and just fall off a cliff right at around this age, around early 30s. And See, I just, I'm, not, I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, I, I, there are certainly examples that you can point to of, of guys who have done that. And then you keep her more than any other position is one where you can point to examples of players that continue at a fairly high level much further on in their in, in their careers. Um, but what would you, I mean, what would you separate between Gigi Buffon, I guess, six years ago, and Casillas three years ago? I mean, is there any two difference between those two? Is there anything you can see in those two players that would suggest, okay, Buffon is still going to be good 
in six years' time, and Casillas won't be. Is I don't. I just don't see any. Yeah, no. I mean, I think that that's that's a a, a fair question. Um, and keepers are. I mean, keepers. We talk a lot about it. I, I know Dan talked about it. Lost podcast too. It's all magic and voodoo, and we have a very hard time sort of capturing numbers wise, analytically, anything rigorous at all about them. So everything that you're saying is is you know everything that I, I'm saying is sort of a scouting from scouting. I've it's very hard to be rigorous about keepers. Um, I would say this. You have to make a judgment as to what degree a keeper is relying on their athleticism. Um, how, you, how you make that judgment is going to vary. But the more reliant a keeper is on their athleticism, the less likely they are to age well. Uh, I think, you know, I, I mean, I think that's why I wouldn't have a tremendous amount of faith in Victor Valdez coming back uh, where, you know, the best part of his game was his, his athleticism and his ability to sort of come off his line behind a Barcelona defense. And then he blows out his knee and now he's getting up there in age. Um, You know, Pepe Reina at Liverpool was somebody who I looked at and I thought, boy, this player lost a half or a quarter of a step of explosiveness and wasn't able to adapt his game to adjust for it. Um, you know, then you have guys like Buffon or Brad Friedel comes to mind, who as they aged, weren't nearly as, you know, weren't nearly as exploited, but part of that is because they just stopped leaving their line ever. That's not the end of the world if you're built to accommodate it until, you know, it gets very extreme. But, you know, that's something I look at with Buffon now, too. He is still, you know, a very, very good goalkeeper. He doesn't have the range he used to coming off his line, and that puts added pressure on your defenders. Um, so where does Peter Cech fall? Well, he, he seems to me like somebody who has never been particularly reliant on getting to a large number of balls at the periphery of his area. Um, He seems to me to be somebody who is much more reliant on flawless positioning, uh, incredibly sound fundamentals. Good distribution is another huge part of his game, which is very, would be very important for Arsenal and you would think would age fairly well. So I look at Czech and I see somebody who I would be confident is that the, is going to age better. But this is kind of all voodoo, right? Like this is this is all in the eye of the beholder, uh, and you're sort of you're operating without a net when you don't have sort of anything rigorous to base those sort of subjective, you know, to hang those subjective judgments on. I think it's it's good that Wenger's not exactly running away with this. Um, you know, the, the much thrown about stat of Ospina having a, an eighty percent save percentage uh, the uh, last season. And it, it sort of shows whether he's trying to or not that he's they're, they're aware that this is really unlikely to be repeated, and that checks underlying sort of over the course of several season numbers are a lot stronger and a lot more, you know, less likely to have that level of variance that Ospina would have next season. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's right. I think, and I think that that sort of pinpoints the danger when you're getting at stats and analytics is that. You know that that you know save percentage as a statistic is is basically meaningless, um, and that's one of the most specific areas where you find that like a little bit of of statistical knowledge out in the world goes a long way to helping make bad decisions. Um, and so yeah, our Arsenal does seem to have avoided that specific pitfall, although. I mean, you can certainly argue as to whether or not Czech is the best solution. I mean, I think it's a good solution. I mean, I'm sure somebody could maybe persuade me there were better solutions out there. But I think the other thing is is that any sort of cheaper, younger, less tested answer in goal carries a lot more variance than Peter Czech does. I, I don't want to just hold on to this for that long, much longer. But if you look at a guy like, like Lopez from Lyon, was the one I said, who I think mm-hmm. would probably cost around the same amount of money. He's 24 years old. He comes to Arsenal. He has a couple of decent years. There's still a 10 million or a 10 million euro uh, sale value there. Whereas with Czech, it's 11 million pounds of sunk money. 
that you're never getting back, regardless of how well you perform. Well, I mean, that's true, but it's also not true. Because if you're signing, and this is this is what happens when you talk about sell-on value at top-level teams when you're, you're talking about bringing in young players. If you go out and bring in Lopez, the only reason you're selling him is if he either demands to go or he hasn't performed up to your expectations. If he hasn't performed up to your expectations, well, guess what? That, that almost certainly you're not having a 10 million sell-on value at that point. Um, and if he demands to go, well, then you're not... You're pro- I mean, the point is not to bring in somebody... I mean, if he demands to go after four years, okay. So now you've basically made a little money instead of spending 11 million on Peter Cech. But that's, I mean, to me, that's the same argument as is Peter Cech worth $11 million now, or whatever the number is. You're just sort of delaying it four years. Um, but there's way less risk that someone like him is going to fall off a cliff. I mean, it could happen, yeah, but there's but, but much really less risk that, of that. But, but really what that just translates into is financial risk, right? Because two years from now, if Cech falls off a cliff, it just means you've got to go get somebody else. Um, and... If Arsenal isn't particularly constrained by the economics of the situation, then it's just, it's the same argument now that you're making now, it's just two years down the line. Um, So yeah, is it possible that two years from now or a year from now you look and you say, boy, check really, you know, I call it Derek Jeter syndrome, right? He still looks the part, but he actually can't do it anymore. Then you're basically, you have to throw another... Seven, eight, twelve million, you know, down the rabbit hole after, after whatever you've spent on check. Um, but I mean, I'm just not sure that keeper is an expensive enough position overall that that's going to amount to a huge mistake. And if you look at sort of, if you, you know, if your major concern is let's improve the keeper position right now for as long as we can, then. You know, you're trading risking two, you know, Lopez comes with a lot more risk now than Czech does next year and probably the year after. Um, So all you're doing is, you know, you're prioritizing a lack of variance in the immediate over lack of variance in the long term, which if you think you're going to challenge at the top of the Premier League next year is a reasonable thing to do. Now, I don't know if Arsenal views themselves that way. Uh, I suspect that they do. But I think it's, it's sort of a reasonable position to take. I think we spent too long on Petr Cech. <laughs> <laughs> so w- one last thing I want to get to is uh, the Women's World Cup, which I know you've been following very closely. And by the time this comes out, the States will have finished their round of 16 game against Columbia. What are your thoughts on this American team? It's a very weird experience being a, a fan of, of the women's team because it's sort of like... <sighs> I feel like it's a glimpse into a lot of the world feels. I mean, a lot of the traditional soccer playing world feels about their, you know, their men's teams where like you, you look at all like sort of the angst around the Brazilian men's team and you're an American and you're like, yeah, I I get all that angst, but I'd still, you know, like cut off a finger to have seven of your players. Um, And, you know, despite how badly, you know, how much of a mess your team may be, you're still one of the top three, four, five teams in the world. And, that's sort of how I feel about the U.S. women's team, which is that there's a lot, they're a lot worse than they could be, sort of in an ideal world. Um, but that also doesn't mean that they aren't one of the three best teams in the tournament. So I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm sort of, because it's not my job to write soberly about them, I can sort of afford to be a little more Pollyanna-ish and optimistic than, than maybe some other people can. And by the time this comes out as well, there could be the chance at a uh, an England Canada quarterfinal, which um, is going to be quite interesting. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> could be quite uh, This could be the last episode. We'll it's been nice, guys. Thank you. <laughs> I, I am saying, not putting myself between the two. Of you. <laughs> I was I was saying the other day, uh, I have a visa pending. For a United, uh, United Kingdom visa pending, which I hope I don't lose with my <laughs> a Canada mm. potential game. I heard that is actually criteria, so unlucky. <laughs> no, I mean, it'll be... 
it, I, first off, I don't think it's going to be England. I think, again, we're, film, we're recording this like three hours before the game, but I think Norway is going to win that game. I, I will say, I'm sorry, but I'm rooting for Norway. I have, I have thoroughly enjoyed the Norwegian team's, um, the, the, their attitude off the field. I think it's been tremendous, and I've been a huge fan. Are you talking about the ad? They... I'm talking about the ad, and yeah. I'm talking about, I don't know if you saw the, the video that they did. Yeah, that video, yeah. You know, where they made, where they sort of made fun of all the different sports stereotypes, which is, you know, which is fantastic and hilarious. Although it would be equally painful as a Canada fan to be kicked out by Norway. Well, it would be more painful actually to be kicked out by Norway having Pellerud, who was our old coach, who we sort of unceremoniously asked to leave. Okay, yes, but, uh, but on the scale of pain, compare <laughs> that with, say, getting kicked out by Sidney LaRue. <laughs> I, uh, well, I mean, it wouldn't, that wouldn't happen until the final, though. Finals. Germany is going to take you guys in the court. Well, Germany or France would take you guys in the semis, so I'm not worried about that. I'm, I'm going to be at that game. If, oh, if, really? So hope, hopefully, I, I'm going to be at the Germany-France quarter and then at yeah, the... Yeah, Germany-China semifinal, you'll be at that one as well? Yes, right. Yes, I'll be at the Germany-China semifinal as well. <laughs> God. God, that would be bad. I don't know what I'll do. I'll still, I'll still show up in my Rapino jersey, but I'll be, it'll be tear-stained. <laughs> uh, and sort of one last thing that I added to the script late was, um, what is it with um, analytics writers and having dogs as your uh, like Twitter profile picture? Yes, you have to, well, you have to have an, a very adorable dog um, who's clearly... He's lying here sound asleep on the floor as I continue to talk, having decided I'm not saying anything interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's also a Grantland thing. There are a lot of dogs among the, among the Grantland writers, or certainly have been at various iterations. Is that, um, is that criteria to get in? Or? I think it's people of a certain age who either don't have kids or don't want to put their kids on the internet, <laughs> but still want something cute. That is certainly my reason for it. <laughs> I think that about wraps it up. If there's anything else you want to plug before we head out? No, um, I'm enjoying a summer mostly off. So maybe a couple of there may be a couple of things for me on Grantland over the summer, but for the most part, it'll pick up again come August when the season starts. I just want to make one last shout. Um, I I was just on Tom and I were just checking out on Skybet.com. You can currently get ten to one odds on Barton to Brentford. So uh, check that out. Good money. Good money. <laughs> I, I very much enjoyed being a part of the, the Barton to Brentford movement on Twitter. It was, it was thoroughly worth it. Yeah, I definitely didn't think it was real. <sighs> Def- definitely not. <laughs> uh, this has been great. Enjoyed it, and I, I love the podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of listening to you guys. So, I'm, I'm please keep, keep through through all the through all the summer months until the season starts again. At least, please keep it up. We'll, we'll, we'll Thanks very to, much. Have to hope for a uh, a non Canada England Women's World Cup game. Further, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I, if 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 it's, if it's at the end of a short and tragic run, I will be sad. <laughs> Cheers, right, Mike. Guys. Cheers, Sam. Right, have a good one. Thanks. Bye.